month of preparing to depart felt like driving at top speed toward a brick wall. We've all had these kinds of experiences where we feel driven towards something, but completely unsure of what the result will be. I didn't know what happens when I finally hit that wall, but the impending death might be some kind of nirvana, a gateway to a new universe of thinking. Macabre though it might be, my job was to drive into the bricks as fast as possible and simply believe that there would be something wonderful on the other side. Urgent destruction of this known reality in exchange for whatever comes next. After all, we all blast through that wall eventually. Nothing is permanent. Why not embrace it? Like the Kool-Aid man. Oh yeah! I gathered speed as I closed the gap. Sleeves rolled up. I was all in white knuckles. Come on, universe. Fuck me up. To propel me forward, I gathered about me a self-confidence, that I would survive the crash, that I could thrive in the impending chaos, and that as a result, I would create something meaningful for others. I paired that confidence with a humbling acknowledgement that the universe would absolutely break me first, that I would confront purposelessness and doubt, that I would explore the deepest intricacies of grief and despair. I had not packed with me any blind optimism that everything would work out. It was my belief that in the ways that things didn't work out, I would find, extract, and communicate the resonant lessons. This next iteration of me would begin life close to the core of existence, molten, under heavy pressure, and dreaming of eventual eruption into purposeful contribution. Perhaps one day, this eager little blob of lava would create new land somewhere it didn't yet exist, eons from now and miles above. For now, all I could do was keep my hands on the steering wheel and look where I wanted to go. I could almost taste the bricks. The car was gone, the condo was leased, the career was delegated, the relationships notified of impending changes to the terms of service. At some points, I would ask for space from my loved ones, especially when I would be so deep in self-exploration that a call from Canada would have felt like the faintest whisper from a foreign galaxy. I needed everyone to know that I wasn't trying to cut them out. Instead, I am wandering a forest, picking fruit from the trees of wisdom, and I'll be back in touch after I bake them into fresh pies for us to share together. I may be infinitely romanticizing the potential value of introspection, but I understand the temptation to become a monk. What can we learn about ourselves by choosing to navigate our own inner workings in isolation or at least separate from typical support systems and for a sustained period of time? Choosing that life of exploration is not necessarily made due to resentment for the world or escapism from it, but instead inspired by the potential gold rush of extraordinary treasures that are mined from the mind. Science is a great tool, though I think it has become a barking, rabid dog at the end of a frayed rope. Most of humanity, and indeed the planet as a whole, was doing just fine before most of the nonsense we've created and concluded in the last 70 years. Learning from experts and brilliant thinkers can also serve a purpose, though we run the risk of becoming dogmatic followers if we're not thinking for ourselves. Surely we should not be looking to most elected leaders for guidance, as everyone who delves into the current structure of political leadership from virtually every angle is appalled to find that corporation and corruption are two common misspellings of the same tragic conclusion. We can pull guidance from our friends and wisdom from our family, but we are often creating a cozy echo chamber where we feel safe and right because we all agree or at least just bite our tongues at Christmas dinners. Such is the risk of promoting unity as a primary ideal. 
education systems too generally create a rigid and narrow definition of normal. And worst of all, schools have mostly evolved into conveyor belts, drifting yet another zombie-like generation towards getting a job. So at some point, you look around at the machine you're trapped in and decide that there just might be resonant universal truth, which actually benefits you and the earth and others. And it's more likely to be found by going without these inputs and going within. So yeah, I understand the temptation of monk life. While not drowning in the swirling stew of society, distracted by a day job and the cravings for external validation, perhaps our perspective gets a little wider. And I believe we need to zoom way out. Before we can even talk about scientific findings, we need to talk about the fact that academia itself is becoming increasingly bought, inclusion within the structures increasingly nepotistic, and most good science that we should be employing never even makes it into policy or media spotlights anyway. Just ask our oceans. These aren't new judgments, just unresolved old ones. Right now, to course correct, I see more value in analyzing the agenda behind the academic and corporate institutions creating the research. And the caliber of the questions they are asking in the first place, rather than clinging to the meager, simplistic answers provided for us in every headline. I would trade about half of all the studies show for its equal weight in political transparency, healthy public dialogue, and a celebration of big picture thinking. A week before I left, I spent the day with my grandma, Margaret. She's 89. She still lives in the same white house that she bought 50 years ago. And until very recently, she still drove a car. I like driving, she sighed as we sipped licorice spice tea on her front porch. I bought that new car because I like to drive it. Sure enough, nine years ago, she had bought a brand new car. Not something I would expect from many octogenarians. But my grandma has gotten quite comfortable doing whatever she wants, and the government taking away her license a few weeks before her 90th birthday, that felt like a deplorable injustice. One of the great tragedies for sure is when you're at the better end of a bell curve and you get lumped in with the average anyway. However, if you can't pass the test, you shouldn't be driving, and there's plenty of younger people than her who should be held to a higher standard. On her good days, Margaret is one of the youngest old ladies on the planet. She looks like she's in her 60s, at least to me. But I guess at some point, we stop noticing people aging and they stay exactly the same way that they've always been to us. She is more stubborn, silly, and curious now than she was 10 years ago. Despite being partially deaf and dependent on hearing aids for her entire life, she is an incredible listener. I can tell she really gets what I'm saying because her responses are slow and perfectly address the root of what I aimed to convey. We speak differently to each other than either of us does with anyone else. We have our own language of deep and accepting understanding of each other, though our life stories and worldviews have very little in common. And now, only a couple years after really feeling this connection with her, I was leaving. I guess we both assumed that it would be her dictating the timeline for any kind of goodbye. And so this felt more jarring and twisted. So, Grandma, let's spend Saturday together. Let's go for a drive in your car before the insurance is cancelled. Let's drink tea and celebrate the connection that we have. I know I can still call her, but like with most people who wear hearing aids, the conversations just aren't the same. They often read lips and facial expressions, and phone audio quality certainly hasn't improved as much as the rest of communication technology in recent decades. So the real warmth of our conversations would be nearly impossible to replicate long distance. 
At the end of a Saturday well spent, a long hug, many I love yous, she stood by her door as I walked towards my car. One final wave and I pulled away from her house and out of view. Around this time, my mom also walked me through a process of a self-awareness tool that we had informally referred to as getting a balance for my entire childhood. The basic concept of getting a balance is simple. Use your own physiology and intuition to uncover what negative beliefs or insecurities are holding you back from further alignment. And it works the other way too. You can look at what's going on in your body and trace that all the way back to what's actually going on in your mind. The idea is that your body already knows what it needs and you just need to listen attentively, which in today's world is almost an absurd thing to claim. If you verbalize questions and then carefully listen for physical responses, such as gentle changes in posture or muscle resistance, your body will provide you with the answers that you're looking for. It's generally used to address physical, emotional, or mental ailments because there's actually no firm distinction between the three. And softening the boundary between those three is what actually improves our lives. I've seen my mom work with probably hundreds of people over the last 30 years, whether it's to overcome a stutter, a fear of spiders, chronic pain, the belief that they are unloved. My mom employs a ruthless intuition and open-mindedness to get at the root issues. For my final couple hours of quality time with her, she showed me the process she follows and I took notes so I could practice later on myself and others. No doubt about it, my mom is the primary reason that I had any initial self-awareness at all. She was always reading books about personal growth. She had a rough childhood of her own, and more than anyone I'd ever met, my mom was determined that when she had children, she would not repeat the same patterns in her new family. She was reading about improving health, although the sprouted grain vegan bread in the 90s was a huge, huge miss. She was employing better communication strategies. She was understanding various personality types. My mom is extremely intentional. She was always working on bettering herself, and I was just picking off her bookshelf. I'd read the five love languages before I was 10 years old. While other kids might have been collecting animorphs and goosebumps, I was often reading Stephen Covey's Habits and the Wealthy Barber's Ideas. But much to my dismay, and it is worth noting, that reading, comprehending, and applying are all separately cultivated skills. Through books, seminars, and motivational tapes, we were a family built around the idea that the future would be better, and that we had to put in the work to make it happen. As a result, I inherited a framework and vocabulary that only recently I am beginning to piece together in a meaningful way for the benefit of myself and others. I am so grateful that my mom was an inspiring presence in my life, watching her push herself and pushing me to do the same. We need not live life at the mercy of our past. My going away party was a hasty and delirious event two days before my departure. I was beyond exhausted from packing, moving, working, and tearful goodbyes. By the time the crowd filled up the small craft distillery to fare me well, I was on my last legs emotionally and physically. Still, to collect my friends and family into one room was the perfect punctuation and deeply important to me. The venue buzzed with lively conversations between genuine people that didn't even know each other and everyone was having an incredible time. These are my people, I thought. This community made me for better or best, and this is what I take with me into the world. What I won't forget that night was the extremely emotional goodbye with my youngest sister, several people describing me as intelligent, memorable because I've spent most of my life trying not to feel stupid, and one of my best friend's mom, who I had failed to invite but still chose to come support me anyways. The next day, my final day in Canada, was spent doing about 10 times as many things as I thought needed to be done. I still hadn't bought the van from Matt and Page. I hadn't finished packing and moving, and the landlord was coming for the walkthrough that afternoon. 
I still needed to get a COVID test to fly. I hadn't even booked a flight or chosen where to fly, and I left in less than 24 hours. I was completely floored by the level of grit and determination that my closest friends instinctively offered that day. Rob and Anna moved most of the items that I wasn't selling to the new tenant into their place for eventual sale. While Gibby ran a load up to my storage unit, Matt helped me decide what I was taking with me and what I was giving away. I booked flights, sorted out the purchase of the van, secured insurance, and tried to stave off a panic attack all before 6pm. So here was the plan. Pack everything that might be useful into the van, fly to Bozeman, Montana, and have the van shipped to me there within a couple days. Amazing, truly, that I could fly into the States until November 7th unvaccinated with a negative test, but I couldn't drive into the country unvaccinated even with a negative test. While the evidence shows that vaccine efficacy wears off after just six weeks, and while not having COVID should be the prerequisite for travel rather than vaccination, testing was becoming obsolete and vaccinations were becoming leaned on even harder. Our culture seeks certainty even if it's in the wrong places. Nonetheless, against a backdrop of irrationality, my job was to get across the border and remain free. Packing my life into this van was the task at hand. This trip was like a Russian doll. I was moving my whole life out of my condo, some of my life into the van, and a smaller amount into a backpack that I would take on my flight. Whatever was in that backpack would be what I had until the van arrived. Whatever was in the van would be what I'd take with me into the next life. And like an Egyptian god trying to take material possessions with me, it turns out that if I could, I would take quite a few. My friends attempted a mini intervention when they saw how much I was taking. Boxes, bags, spices, a few good plates, piles of books, camping things, and a BB gun, all packed into the van like it was a cargo truck and not a place to live. I insisted that I make my own choices as I go about deciding what to keep or not, as I developed my own rhythm on the road. It's an intimate and intentional form of self-exploration. How do you organize your home and your possessions? Still, a handmade charcuterie board, soda stream, and an extra laptop keyboard seemed a little opulent, even to me. But famous Egyptian King Tut would have taken more, and his keyboard would have been made from pure gold, so I thought I was coming into my next life a little empty-handed. Once all the packing and planning was finally finished, it was time to enjoy my evening. My closest friends and I went for sushi, complete with some mushroom tea, and we laughed and cried. Six of us squished around a table made for four with Paige on FaceTime since she was in quarantine with the vid, as is tradition in our friend group when it's a big moment for someone, like a birthday or a goodbye party. We each take a moment to celebrate that person by sharing something meaningful or memorable for all to hear. Due to intense burnout and combined with the fact that all emotions are amplified on mushrooms, my anxiety was actually through the roof. But when these closest people started sharing with me how much I meant to them, the validation and sense of belonging grounded me there, at that table, with them. I felt safe. I felt wanted. I felt loved. And now that I had it all, I was leaving. Unbelievable. What was I doing? Later that night, Britt picked me up. She had an Airbnb booked so she could spend a few days processing the end of our relationship without the distraction of roommates and routines. I thought that was a brilliant move. Creating physical space to process emotional pressure is something your body will thank you for. When you need to work through something, take yourself somewhere to do it. A hill, a river, a little cabin in the woods. If you're just thinking about things you're frustrated about commuting to work, then your emotions and inner wisdom will never really come to the surface. 
And so we had our last night together in the Airbnb. We were both exhausted, unregulated, hungry, and sensitive. It could have spelled out destruction. But using a two-minute exercise called the SO method, S-E-W, we took turns communicating the sensations we were feeling in our bodies, the emotions that were coming up for us, and what we needed from each other. We hadn't used it before, and even though it was our last night together, it was fitting that we try something new to deepen connection. Personal growth isn't talking about everything you're struggling with or what you've learned lately. Growth is achieved when you're having a tough time, and this time, you make different choices anyways. The SO method allowed us to realize that we both wanted the same thing. Once we dropped all the details and insecurities and storylines and physical sensations, we really just wanted to feel connected to each other. And then, very suddenly, we were. We ordered food, wrapped ourselves in blankets, and held each other. The next morning, we stayed in bed until the last possible moment before making our way to the airport. Britt parked in short-term parking so that she could come in. Once I checked my bag and had a boarding pass, I was finally able to relax. For the last month, I had been carrying the weight of nervous anticipation. Would I sell everything in time? Would I get the passport? Would someone take the car? Would I see everyone I wanted to? Would the rules stay the same long enough to allow me to make it to the USA? Now, with the bag checked and my paper ticket in my hand, it was as real and certain as it could be. Britt and I sat in the empty airport for an hour, sharing some last thoughts. It's going to be a while before I reach out, I started slowly, looking into her beautiful, sullen eyes. And I don't want you thinking that I'm not thinking about you. I'll be wanting to reach out like crazy, and I still won't. She nodded. When I do reach out, it'll be after plenty of times of wanting to and choosing not to. The space will do us both good so that we're seeking strength and comfort in our new lives and not just from each other. It felt like the right thing to do. If you're going to end a relationship and encourage both people to go out and reinvest in themselves, then a little separation keeps the water from getting muddied. I needed to learn how to confront loneliness and sadness by leaning into it rather than seeking outwardly to escape it. I needed to live with my decision to thrive in it and not drag someone else who is hurting in her own right through the turbulence while I explored what that even meant. For now, I needed to love myself. And for a moment sitting there, I didn't want to leave. I wasn't hesitating on my decision. I hadn't hesitated once, but nobody likes a real goodbye. The last kiss, the final hug, I love you. I memorized exactly how she fits in my arms and how her arms feel like a place of belonging. Our connection was a house we had built. Sure, it had a few leaks and there were some suspiciously swept floors and lumpy carpets. There were dark corners and unexplored rooms, whole other floors that we could have wandered together for years. But this had been home and it was here that I had learned the most and healed the most. Now we were sitting on the front steps for the last time. I checked the time and we stood up and walked to the place where she would go her way and I would go mine. She held tightly and I held tightly back, her head buried in my chest, just the right height for me to kiss her forehead. There were no more words. What was the point after all? We all communicate in many languages and words are not the right card for every occasion. In silence, in arms, we knew exactly how to say goodbye. With perfect synchronicity, I inhaled deeply and slowly, her own chest mirroring mine as she filled her own lungs. And then together, a long, slow exhale. One deep breath, as if to set our bodies to the same time, one last time. 
From now on, we would slowly drift out of time, move at different speeds, and get lost in our own universes. Some things would fade, memories would shift every time I accessed them, but through it all I promised myself I would always have that one deep breath. The customs officer looked at my plane ticket and asked what I would be doing in Bozeman. Like I have any fucking idea, man. Look at me, with my stupid bag and my stupid hat and my ambiguous ambitions. I have no idea what Bozeman is, and I don't plan on being there for any longer than it takes for the van to arrive. <clears throat> I'm gonna write, I said. Ah, time to clear your mind. No, I smirked. It's time to organize my mind. There you are, you dramatic fool. You got this. Bozeman is a great spot to write, he said. He was maybe the fourth person who had told me how great Bozeman is, and I couldn't care. I wasn't staying there. I was just waiting for the van to ship there. After that, send me straight to Sunshine. How, uh, how long do you plan on being there, he said. I didn't like that question. I couldn't tell him that I fully intended on staying past the legal six-month limit. But I also didn't want to lie, and I almost famously avoid committing to any future. I had told everyone that I would be gone two months, six months, eight months, one year, two years, and after that, who really knows? I cleared my throat and shifted my feet and met his eyes directly. A while, for sure. I, you never know with this whole writing thing. His eyebrows raised slightly, and I kept speaking. I'll, uh, I'll probably move around a bit, too. I have friends in Colorado. Maybe go to California. Okay, he said, suddenly speaking slowly, like a wise old father to his unruly son. Just remember, you only have six months, and then you need to cross the border out of the States. Yeah, totally. Do you want me to write down the exact date for you so that you have it and can remember? No thanks, I got it. I didn't have it. But hypothetically, if I just came to the border and then went straight back in, would that be cool? All right, my man. He took his mask off, leaned back, and folded his arms across his massive bulletproof chest. Here's the deal. If six months from now you can demonstrate financial sustainability, if you have money, then all you have to do is catch the border guard on the right day, show him your account balance, and he'll let you right back in. What we don't want to see is someone who is broke coming into the country because then we're going to assume that you're getting involved in crime in order to survive. You aren't getting involved in any crime, are you? I wasn't planning on it, no, but between speeding, parking tickets, and all manner of illegal substances that shouldn't be illegal, I knew society's rules were guidelines for the wise and to be adhered to by fools. It is specifically this desire to question irrationality and flaunt fear-based policy that allows me to see the narrow bumpers between which authorities will allow you to exist. For your safety, is among the most overused and ill-defined phrases that the government will use to protect its own existence. For your safety is not a cautionary guidance, it's a threat. Comply, because we said so. And in case this sounds like some sort of libertarian rant, let's just think about the absurdity of 8 billion humans all existing according to the same beliefs, values, rules, and routines. First of all, widely accepted inflexible laws have never existed anywhere at any time. Throughout 200,000 years of Homo sapiens history, we've seen the thriving of everything from Mormonism, cannibalism, communism, capitalism, racism, tribalism, pacifists, monarchies, left-handedness, vegans, and witchcraft. Part of celebrating the innate neurodiversity of the human species, or any species, is to see how diverse the values and lifestyles are that evolve over space and time. 
the colonialist and egotistical approach to shaming, silencing, and obliterating any conflicting worldviews and personal choices, this is one of the most widespread, normalized, and tragic cancers on society. We were born to disagree, and we need to celebrate that experience instead of vilifying dissent. A lot of people get angry or afraid and believe that emotion justifies the subsequent conquering of those diverse perspectives. You don't like it, so it's gotta go. Thankfully, the urge to defend your way of life and live differently than your neighbor cannot be extinguished. So at some point, we'll have to acknowledge that any idea of an objective global morality is simply absurd. I live on my terms, and my terms involve loving others, accepting differences of opinion, and offering support to those around me, regardless of whether I agree with their choices. Just don't expect me to live by your rules. Do not oppress others into your systems and beliefs. Do not destroy all alternatives and then demand that they comply on threat of exile. Remember, the more you become in tune with yourself, the more you realize you don't need to control the world around you, and the more you realize that you need not be controlled by the world. When you train yourself to suspend judgment and proceed with curiosity, you will have less of a negative reaction to the unfamiliar and seemingly incompatible. If you need and expect the world to conform to your perspective in order for you to be happy, you will live a miserable and insecure life, grasping at false senses of safety and voting for people who seek to destroy diversity. Live, let live, and get interested in new perspectives rather than more stubborn about your own. And if your immediate thought is, but they're costing taxpayers money, or what they're doing just doesn't make sense, then it's worth noting that aligning your life to save taxpayer money or conform to societal inclusion are among the most vapid and limp bases by which someone could live their life. This is the fundamental intersection of socialism, where we fund things together, and freedom, where people can do what they want with their bodies. We have always spent money on people who made questionable choices. This isn't new. We humans are infamous for not making sense, for taking risks, and for living by a myriad of frameworks across the world. It's baked into every facet of our lives. That's the point of diversity. That's the value of it. Evolution is trying new things all the time. New risk thresholds, new values, new energy levels, new passions, new skills, new priorities, just to see what works today and resonates. You can't stamp out diversity, but you can oppress it out of fear and lack of understanding, right? See where that gets you. No, I said, I won't be committing any crimes. I proceeded through customs and grabbed a seat at the airport bar. Two other men in their 40s lined up alongside me were already talking about how they were each taking one last trip before they were indefinitely trapped in their own country. When they came back from their respective trips, they knew that they'd each be settling down for a long winter until the veil of deep, angry irrationality was lifted. They spoke about many things. I listened and occasionally joined in. I don't care what people do, one of them said. I just don't consent to being forced into ineffective and unproven injections created by knowingly corrupt corporations. Where was the rational, transparent conversation? Where was the separation of facts from opinions? Why are so many dissenting scientists being silenced? How are we okay with pharma companies paying politicians? Why are highly vaccinated countries having record highs of new cases? What are these heart conditions that are popping up among healthy athletes with record numbers of them collapsing on the field while they're playing their game? Why are so many medical professionals losing their jobs for not complying with the messaging? 
Are we forgetting that the media is focused on viewership and not balanced, comprehensive coverage? How did we make the absolutely massive philosophical jump from, I want to do this for me, to everyone must do this or else? When are we going to realize that the virus itself is not that deadly and outcomes have far more to do with your pre-existing health? When will it become obvious that humans are more dangerous to each other than the virus ever was? Two or three people at nearby tables glared suspiciously, as if they were relieved that this was the last day we could legally travel. It's time to imprison the dissenters. I smiled back. The culture would have to adjust its expectations back to some baseline of reality soon. We were undoing the moral fabric of society, changing the ethics on a legislative level because the long-standing legislation was no longer convenient for the fearful or the powerful. At some point, surely, we'll have to hit pause on fighting an unwinnable war, an unnecessary war against an endemic virus, right? At some point, we'll remember that expecting everyone to agree, even by force, is exactly where militant, dictatorial oppression comes from. I get to see my grandma again when this is all over, right? I headed to the boarding gate, my feet feeling a little heavy. In so many ways, this was going to be a difficult journey, and I couldn't believe that it had all conspired successfully exactly 31 days after the decision was made to leave. I had walked away from my old life, from momentum, from the obligations, the comfort, and the stability, and I walked on with exhausted footsteps that celebrated the frantic accomplishment, each plodding step paying homage to the weight of the gift of my ambiguous future. As soon as the plane ascended above and away from the gray familiar skyline, I fell into the deepest sleep I had in a long time. Hello, brick wall. I am yours. <laughs>